Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I think what drove the $30 million punitive damages award are the factors that should drive the award, that the conduct was egregious. I mean, engineering a product to be as addictive as possible, you know, getting, getting a young kid hooked on cigarettes, you know, causing the worst kind of damages that could be caused. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with my uh, 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 always hardworking uh, <laughs> Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, I know you're right in the middle of trial prep. So, uh, so how are you doing? I am, as you would expect, I feel pretty insane right now, but so far so good. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's, uh, it's one that we, uh, we get to try. The last one we were about ready to try, it got, uh, got appealed at the last minute. So, uh, so hopefully this one will get to go and we'll have, uh, have some fun at trial. Yeah, this looks, this looks like it's going right in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which is when everybody has a lot of spare time. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and what else would you want to be doing during that time? Exactly. And what else would a jury want to be doing during that time? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, well, Vaughn, I wanted to uh, introduce our two uh, great guests today. And, uh, and, and I'll just say we're going to talk about this a lot more when we talk about the trial that they were involved in. But these guys don't like to do things the easy way. I mean, not only do they decide to take on one of the largest uh, corporations or, or multiple uh, corporations in the world, but then they decided to add a, a, a whole other industry to that in the same trial. And they tried what I, I can tell it looks like the first uh, case where both a, a case against the tobacco manufacturers and the asbestos manufacturers were tried at the same time. So let's welcome uh, Jerry Block and Mike Shepard. Guys, how are you doing? Great. Good afternoon. And uh, great, Steve. Thanks. And like I said, I mean, when I when I first read, uh, you know, your your uh, started reading about the case and, and and what you all worked on, I was like, man, you know, doing a tobacco case is hard enough. Uh, doing an asbestos case is hard enough, but this case involved uh, involved both of those. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, what we'll talk more about, I think, is that if you try to, to do uh, an asbestos case with someone who has lung cancer. And who was a heavy smoker, right? Uh, and you don't bring in the tobacco defendants, which is usually the case in asbestos litigation. Uh, that it's actually harder, right? Uh, because you, you have the empty chair of the tobacco defendants that the asbestos companies are going to point to. So we said, uh, well, maybe one way of looking at it is that it was harder, but in right. some ways it was easier. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, let me tell uh, let me tell our listeners who who we are. So, Jerry, I introduce you first. So, uh, Jerry Block is a partner at Levi Konigsberg, uh, up in well, with offices in New York, New Jersey, and Georgia. I think Jerry's in the New York office. You can look up Jerry at uh, Levy L E V Y Law dot com, and uh, and Jerry. Um, your law firm was one of the first uh, in the nation uh, to really uh, get into asbestos cases and mesothelioma cases back in the uh, in the 1970s. And and Jerry, um, we're not talking about uh, this case today, but you just recently, in the past few months, uh, had a 325 million dollar verdict against Johnson and Johnson for the asbestos levels in their talc uh, and causing his uh, um, causing ovarian cancer to your client. Mesothelioma. Uh, Oh, meso. Okay, I totally misunderstood that. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, just fantastic work, and we'll have to talk about that case uh, another time. Um, but um, Jerry has been a trial and techniques uh, uh, 
teacher at Emory's Trial and Techniques Program and taught uh, cross-examination, has been named in the Best Lawyers in America every year since 2005, Uh, has been uh, routinely named as a super lawyer in New York City, and is on the National Trial Lawyers uh, uh, list of top 100 attorneys, and, um, and went to Emory Law School down here in our neck of the woods. Um, and I understand that even though you, uh, you have been uh, living and raising your family in New York, you are a lifelong St. Louis Blues and St. Louis Cardinals uh, fan. That's absolutely, that's, that's in the blood. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> you don't give that up. Right, right, exactly. You know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Mike has nothing to say about that being, I, I, I'm assuming, Mike, you're a lifelong uh, Red Sox fan. I am, yes. Yeah, right. So, uh, so Mike Shepard has his law firm up in Boston, Massachusetts, and, uh, and it's the, the Shepard Law Firm. Uh, and you can look up Mike at shepherdlawfirm.com. That's Shepard is S-H-E-P-A-R-D, lawfirm.com. So uh, Mike is in, in Boston, Massachusetts, barred in both Massachusetts and Connecticut, has been uh, named a super lawyer, uh, been named in the top 100 lawyers by the Na- National Trial Lawyers, and in 2018 was Massachusetts Lawyer of the Year and has uh, um, tried cases to verdict um, uh, many times and has spoken for AAJ among a number of other groups. Uh, so Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, we really, uh, we're really glad to have you on, uh, both of you. And, and um, you know, as I was telling Jerry before this, we, we have uh, interviewed uh, some other lawyers about doing tobacco cases. And I'm always, uh, you know, sort of shocked at the type of marketing, the type of work that was put into, you know, selling to children and then making sure that once somebody starts smoking, they get addicted. And those were all uh, sort of themes that you, you guys hit in this case. Um, along and, with- and also, Steve, I just I want to yeah. bring up, I know we're going to talk about it later, but I am one of those people who thought that menthol was really just a flavor of cigarettes. Right. So right, I right. know we're going to talk about that later, but um, I learned a lot from learning about this case. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. That's what I was going to mention is that this case, the other cases that we tried were tobacco cases, but they didn't involve menthol cigarettes, which, uh, as we're going to talk a lot more about, menthol uh, makes cigarettes easier to smoke because it numbs the throat uh, and also makes them more addictive and it enhances the uh, the nicotine effects on the body. So menthol is actually uh, adds to the addiction level of the nicotine that's already in there. Um, but the case that you tried, that uh, Jerry and Mike tried, was called Summerlin versus Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, and Hampton Auto, Auto Sales up in uh, Middlesex uh, Superior Court in Massachusetts. And you were representing uh, Louis, Louis Summerlin was the decedent, and his wife Joanna uh, was the um, uh, representative of his estate. Uh, and uh, had her own claim for loss of consortium. Um, after a uh, uh, after the trial, uh, the verdict came out at. Uh, I'm going to break this down the way it was in the verdict form, but it was uh, 5.3 million in pain and suffering for Lewis Summerlin, uh, 3.5 million for Joanna for her loss of consortium claim, and then uh, the death claims, which. Uh, is a little bit different than the way they do it in Georgia. And so we can talk about that, but it looks like the value of, of or the, the value of a wrongful death claim is based on the dependence level of the people who are left behind. And so that would have been Joanna and then uh, Lewis's son, Christopher. And there was 2.5 million was awarded to Joanna 
And then 1.8 million was awarded to Christopher for a total of uh, $13.1 million in compensatory damages. And then a punitives award uh, on top of that of $30 million for a total award of 43,100,000 against the RJ Reynolds uh, defendants. Is that right, guys? That's right. Yep. Um, and so, uh, and so basically the case was about, uh, Lewis Summerlin who, and, and from what I could tell from the openings and closings, there must've been some dispute about timing when he first started smoking and when he quit and things like that. But it, it looks like he started smoking around the age of 15 or 16, uh, and, um, really, uh, pretty early on liked smoking menthols, um, this he was born in 1942. I should have said that Lewis was uh, was 73 years old when he passed. Um, he was born in 1942, so he started smoking in the in the 1950s. Uh, the first warning label wasn't even put onto a cigarette uh, uh, package until 1966, so there were no warnings on it. Uh, and Lewis became addicted, and there was a lot of evidence about his addiction levels. And I know that was a hotly disputed issue in the in the trial. Uh, tried to quit multiple times at the same time that he was a uh, one to uh, two packs a day or maybe even three packs a day smoker. Uh, he was also working as an auto mechanic uh, for about 25 years and being uh, uh, subjected to um, the uh, uh, breaks that contained asbestos um, of where he worked and, um, and so was also getting exposed to asbestos. Uh, at the same time that he was um, smoking and uh, unfortunately um, passed away from lung cancer in 2000. Well, I lost, I lost time. 2015, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, And then, and that's what the case was about was, was about the uh, tobacco companies basically having a uh, um, selling in order to addict um, people like Lewis. Uh, And then, um, you know, making sure that they stayed smoking by uh, keeping the nicotine levels and the menthol uh, very high. And, um, and at the end of the day, um, the jury found that, um, that RJ Reynolds, and, and, and I should have explained that he, he started out smoking the cool brand menthols, which was made by Brown and Williamson, and uh, which eventually became RJ Reynolds. Uh, and then later on in life, he switched to um, the Marlboro brand, uh, which was made by Philip Morris. And, and from what I can tell from the jury, uh, the jury found against R.J. Reynolds uh, for the addiction and for causing the uh, lung cancer, but not against Philip Morris. How, how is that for a, a general recap of the case? That's well done. Very well done. Good summary. <laughs> There's, there's, there's a lot more to be discussed there. And, uh, you know, I, I've always, you know, tobacco cases, and I've never handled a tobacco case, uh, you know, they've always struck me as being difficult cases because you're all, it seems to me that you're going to come up against a, a jury pool who thinks, and, and the tobacco companies who, who talk a lot about uh, that, you know, look, there's a choice made to start smoking and, uh, and you could quit when you wanted to. And I know that was a big contested issue, but, uh, but talk about how, when you approach a case like this, how you decide to take on a, a case that's as, as, you know, you know that the tobacco companies are not going to make trial easy. And you know that there's some jury biases out there uh, against these types of cases. Sure. Uh, I'll start if it's okay, Mike. Uh, Yeah, go for it. So, you know, when this case first was uh, brought to my firm's attention, uh, we looked at it 
And, you know, one of the key things in our mind was that Mr. Summerlin started smoking when he was a teenager, uh, that he started smoking when he was 15 or 16 years old. Uh, it was, that would have been in the late 1950s. And, you know, it was key to us that he, when he started smoking, that there were no warnings on the cigarette packs. There was no warnings on advertisements, certainly. And very, very little was known publicly about the fact that smoking could cause cancer and that uh, nicotine and cigarettes was addictive. So we felt that that was an important piece uh, to go against the defendant's argument of, you know, personal choice. You know, we're talking about someone who was a kid when they got addicted and it wasn't, it was not an informed choice because the information that the cigarette companies knew was not given to the public, was not given to Mr. Summerlin. Um, you know, when the case also came in, you know, I looked at it and I said, you know, this, this could be a great asbestos case, you know, uh, you know, but for uh, the fact that Mr. Summerlin had a 100 or 150 pack year smoking history. Right. And a pack year is if you smoke one pack of cigarettes for one year, that's one pack year. So he smoked cigarettes for 50 years and he smoked about two packs of cigarettes a day. There was some testimony about three packs of cigarettes a day. So we're talking about 100 pack years. Um, historically, in the asbestos litigation, uh, firms that do asbestos cases like my firm, Levy Konigsberg, and, and Mike's firm, the Shepherd Law Firm, and lots of other firms around the country, uh, typically these cases would be filed against asbestos companies uh, and not with a tobacco defendant. Uh, however, it would be a very difficult case it's a case that you might be able to settle, you know, for a certain amount of money, but it would be unlikely to be a very successful case, particularly a trial. So when the case came in, I saw that, you know, Mr. Summerlin had lived in Boston and the smoking was in Boston. His auto mechanic history was in Boston, although he and Joanna had moved to New Hampshire. And uh, our firm and the Shepherd Law Firm go way back. And, you know, not only do we work on cases together, but we're really good friends. And I called Mike and I said, you know, what do you think? I mean, what do you think about uh, doing this case, you know, against the tobacco companies, against the manufacturers of the brakes and the, autom and the automobiles, you know, the vehicles that uh, he worked on that included asbestos in their products <laughs> and bringing everyone to the table and, you know, letting the jury uh, sort it out. And that's sort of how it got started. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. 
They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by The Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention The Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. And Mike, you were all in right from the beginning. Is that right? I was. I was. I mean, <laughs> as Jerry mentioned, the, the frustration with uh, lung cancer cases is the empty chair defense, right? Is the when you have mesothelioma as a disease, its only known cause is exposure to asbestos. So you don't have to worry about what and whether a person smoked. But in, an, in a lung cancer case, adenocarcinoma, small cell carcinoma, the smoking always becomes a defense. And generally, the guys who were working with asbestos smoked because they were right. in the Navy, they were in the shipyards, they were in the construction trades, or they were auto mechanics. So it's been very frustrating to have a person uh, who, who you really want to do a good job for, but for the tobacco element of it, really uh, making it so that the asbestos defendants didn't treat it as seriously as it should have been. So when Jerry came to me and said, uh, he said two things. He, he described the case to me, which sounded great. And he said that, you know, this is a guaranteed trial. Tobacco doesn't settle. And right. we know that we are in for the long haul on this one. And I said, you know, that, that is perfect. Because how often do you enter into a case knowing that you're going to get to try the case, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> Yvonne, you're working right now on one. And, and there, you know, maybe you settle because you've got a Christmas jury coming. Maybe you don't. There's that uncertainty going in. Whereas in this case, we prepared it as we always do, as if it's going to try. But we knew it was going to try. So, it, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with all of the hard work and all of the nonsense that they put you through, you at least know that you're going to have your day in court on this one. And, and, and we did. And one thing I always like to ask when you're looking at a case like this, uh, and I don't know uh, the uh, uh, Massachusetts geography, what's Middlesex County or what's that area like? So uh, it's, it's Massachusetts has kind of a funny system for asbestos cases. So even though the case is captioned in Middlesex County, uh, the case was tried in Suffolk County. Oh, okay. The, all asbestos cases in Massachusetts are handled by uh, one judge who is in charge of the entire docket. So no matter where in the state you live, your cases are filed in Middlesex because the, one of the original asbestos judges was based out of Middlesex County. And now whoever happens to be in charge, now it's been uh, Judge Heidi Brieger now for a few years, she spends her time mostly in Suffolk, but also part-time in Lowell. So depending on where she is, that's where your trial is going to be. Um, so we, we captioned it in Middlesex, but we tried it in Suffolk uh, in the Superior Court in downtown Boston. Okay, okay. And, and what would the, as far as a smoking case goes there, how did you all feel about the, uh, the veneer panel that you were looking at? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I could talk about that a little bit, uh, and Mike can as well. Um, we, we did not really have uh, lawyer voir dire. And, okay. that's, and as you know, uh, it's difficult when you basically have a voir dire that is being conducted by the judge. And uh, I think there was some discussion ahead of time uh, with the court and the, and the lawyers about, you know, what she was going to ask. And it was very limited. You know, it was uh, things like, you know, have you ever been a smoker? And a little bit about their smoking history. Uh, 
you know, has anyone in your family been a smoker, a little bit about their smoking history? Uh, same type of questions about asbestos exposure, um, you know, and then sort of like a question about whether you have something against the tobacco industry or asbestos companies that would, that you couldn't be fair or something against, you know, a plaintiff bringing these kind of cases. And then, uh, you know, the judge would have uh, individual jurors come up and this would be done, you know, really within like a, a couple minutes uh, per potential uh, juror. And the judge would maybe allow just a little follow-up. I mean, but a little follow-up. And, uh, and that was it. Uh, so we didn't have an opportunity to know much more about our potential jurors than what was in the questionnaire and, and the, just a very limited voir dire that the judge did. And, you know, to me, uh, that was a little scary. <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> uh, as a New York lawyer, I'm used to hours of full-blown uh, attorney idea where we really get to dig deep and find out the views of the jury. So uh, I think going in, uh, we felt like we needed uh, some educated jurors uh, because some of the arguments by the tobacco companies were very, uh, I'll, I'll just call it sort of dumbed down, uh, you know, like put simply blame the smoker right. uh, and, and kind of overlook the science of addiction. So we thought we needed some smart jurors, uh, and you certainly uh, can find some smart jurors in Boston. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, we haven't had, in Massachusetts, we haven't had voir dire at all until uh, a couple of years ago when it was, uh, it was brought into our system. So it's a, uh, it's a work in progress. Uh, each judge is entitled to approach it their own way. And the way this judge did it was uh, a way that we didn't get panel voir dire. We got individual voir dire, but it really wasn't much. It was at best a couple of questions. And we had to ask her the question we were going to ask before we were allowed to ask it of the juror. It was all done one by one at sidebar. Um, so there's, you know, there's some panel voir dire taking place now. There's some of this. This is what we got, but it's, it's a brave new world. I mean, we, prior to this, we had no voir dire at all. And I've picked juries in an hour and a half. Uh, oh, a 14 wow. member jury in an hour and a half in Massachusetts. And that's, you talk about a scary ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it is some of the federal courts down here, the judges that, you know, they're going to ask about 10 minutes worth of questions and then, uh, and then you're off picking your jury. Uh, yeah. No, no, no more questions. Um, well, and, and I thought I read somewhere in the transcript, did you, did you guys end up trying this case with less than 12 jurors? Was there some issue there? We did. And it was, uh, that was one of the, the, heart attack moments we had in the trial, really the, the worst one. Uh, we started with 14 jurors and on day one openings, four of the jurors went to the judge and tried to get off the jury. She let two of them go and kept two, but she said to all of us, listen, if we move forward with 12 jurors and we lose one during this trial, we are, I am not gonna grant a mistrial. So I want everyone to agree that we can move forward with less than 12. And everyone on the record agreed to it. And about halfway through the trial, maybe two thirds of the way through the trial, we lost a juror. A juror's mother passed away. Yeah. And uh, the judge had to let her go. And we are down to 11 jurors. And Tobacco at this point had seen that the trial wasn't going their way. <laughs> right, right. And immediately moved for a mistrial. And uh, the judge came close to granting the mistrial until we were able to show her the transcript. And she went back in chambers to her credit, read through the transcript and came out and decided that 
no, there had been a knowing and affirmative waiver of, of going below 12 jurors and, and allowed us to proceed. But if not for an impassioned uh, speech by Jerry in front of the judge, we might not have even gotten that far. Right, right, right. I, I, I think I said something along the lines that uh, we don't have billions of dollars. We don't make cigarettes. <laughs> and, and if there's a mistrial here, there's a substantial risk. This case will not be tried. And Mrs. Summerlin has been living here in Boston. We've been living here in Boston. And uh, yeah, it, it, thankfully the judge uh, let things continue. They did an immediate appeal. And, uh, and there was a response from the appellate court uh, that backed the judge and said, you know, there was an agreement here. And so uh, not only did the trial continue, but we had the appellate issue resolved like right then and there. Right. Okay. Um, well, and I wanted you guys to kind of walk through your theory of the case a little bit. I mean, I, I saw a, a lot of evidence on addiction and on the uh, uh, addiction involving menthol cigarettes. So I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about the science behind that and what the evidence you were able to put on of that was. Sure. Uh, so really addiction was at the center of our case. And uh, I mean, if you just uh, read the openings and the closing and you, you sort of track the word addiction and how many times I use the word addiction in the opening and closing versus how many times the, the defendant said the word addiction. Uh, they barely mentioned it and it was really at the heart of, of our entire case. Um, I mean, the, the claim was the claims were basically that Mr. Somerlin became addicted uh, to menthol cigarettes when he was a teenager, before there were warnings on the packs, before there was warnings on advertisements, uh, during a time in history when the tobacco companies were denying that cigarettes were addictive, when the tobacco companies were denying that there was any health hazards from cigarettes at all, and and that his addiction uh, was severe, and that it, 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 was, it could be objectively measured. Uh, so we called uh, an expert, uh, Dr. Michael Cummings, uh, who took all the information from, from uh, Mr. Summerlin's sworn deposition testimony, the testimony from the other witnesses, and he actually assessed Mr. Summerlin's addiction uh, under you know, standard, generally accepted, uh, methodologies and uh, gave the opinion to the jury that he was uh, the most severely addicted you can be. Uh, things like smoking within 15 minutes or within 30 minutes of waking up in the morning, uh, attempting to quit and not being able to, even with quit aids, uh, feeling, uh, feelings of nicotine withdrawal. Uh, when, when you go without smoking, you know, even for, even for an hour, let's say. Um, and so it was our position that it was the failure to warn, it was the fraudulent concealment that occurred when Mr. Summerlin was young, when he was starting to smoke, uh, that were the claims of negligence and fraud, uh, and that's what that was based on. But even more, and, and maybe even more powerful to, to the jury, was that uh, the evidence we put on that Reynolds uh, and Philip Morris designed the cigarette uh, in a way to make sure it was addictive and to make sure uh, it was really as, as addictive as possible. And, um, and that's a design defect claim. Uh, because like any other product, when you make a cigarette, uh, you have to make it uh, re really as safe as you can 
And if there's a safer alternative design, you have to use it. And so we really put forth three, uh, three reasons why the cigarette was designed effectively. Uh, one, uh, the cigarette contained menthol. And, you know, when a person starts to smoke, I mean, anyone who's ever tried smoking a cigarette uh, knows that when you first start smoking, uh, you'll gag, you'll cough. You know, it is not natural to breathe in tobacco smoke. And particularly when you're a teenager trying cigarettes, you're going to cough, you're going to gag. And it's sort of absurd, but the idea of a menthol cigarette is to uh, really neutralize or to disable almost the defense mechanisms that that people have that will prevent them from uh, inhaling a cigarette or you know inhaling cigarette smoke uh, menthol uh, is a numbing agent uh, you know it would be like it would be like giving a kid a Hall's menthol cigarette or a Hall's menthol lozenge and saying oh you know try this when you smoke it'll be easier to breathe in the cigarette smoke and uh, so the fact that the cigarette had menthol and uh, it, it's not just that menthol makes it easier to initiate young people into becoming smokers, but the, the scientific evidence as backed by a, a, a expert panel for the FDA has concluded that menthol actually makes cigarettes more addictive, that menthol has effects in the brain with nicotine that uh, makes cigarettes uh, more difficult to quit, makes cigarettes more addictive. Uh, the other two uh, design defect theories um, that we prevailed on was that the cigarette companies knew that there was a minimum level of nicotine that you need to deliver in a cigarette for that cigarette to initiate addiction and to sustain addiction. And that amount is approximately one milligram of nicotine. Uh, we showed that the cigarette companies were capable of making cigarettes uh, down to 0.1 milligram of nicotine, uh, even lower, and that the cigarette companies knew what the threshold was. They made sure that the cigarettes that Mr. Summerlin smoked and the, and the most popular brand of cigarettes met that threshold uh, when they could have made a safer alternative design, which is a cigarette that's either not addictive or less addictive. Uh, right. And then finally, uh, that the cigarettes that Mr. Summerlin smoked uh, delivered more carcinogens in the form of the cigarette tar, and they were capable of having a cigarette that delivered less. So a lot of the defense on that was uh, something everyone knows, which is that there's no safe cigarette. But under the law, of course, we, we did not have to prove that there was a safe alternative. We just had to show that there was a safer alternative, one that would have reduced the risk of Mr. Summerlin uh, developing lung cancer. And then uh, finally, you know, Mike can talk a little bit about this, but, you know, everyone knows uh, that smoking causes lung cancer. And we knew that the tobacco companies didn't have much of a chance convincing any juror that smoking was not a cause of his lung cancer. Uh, but uh, asbestos also causes lung cancer. And Mike, you want to talk a little bit about our claims against the asbestos companies um, and then the medicine, medical science surrounding that? Sure. Yeah. So layered on top of the tobacco evidence we put on trial, we had to put on evidence of causation with respect to asbestos. And, and the way asbestos works is uh, if you've got a product that contains asbestos and you're working with it and fibers are released from that product, you breathe those fibers in, the fibers get inside your lungs and uh, 
in the case of a lung cancer, they will start over a latency period of anywhere from 20 to 50 years, those will trigger a malignancy, a, malig a chain of, uh, of mutations in the cells that will lead to a malignancy. And so we had to prove that Mr. Summerlin had significant enough exposures to asbestos that were going to allow our causation experts to say that, that the asbestos exposure was a su substantial contributing cause of his lung cancer as well. And uh, in order to do that, we had to bring out evidence of his work with brakes, and we were showing how he uh, worked not only repairing brakes on the cars that came in, but also installing new brakes on the cars. So when he'd take these, and, and the cars in the time frame that he were working were largely drum brakes. So you take the wheel off and you have this big metal drum that covered the brake linings. And you pull that drum off and it's, it's loaded with dust. And you have, they used a, a compressed air hose to blow the dust, to clean it off of the brake assemblies, to clean it off of the wheel and the brake drum and then proceed to remove the old linings and install new linings. And so we, we showed evidence of dust exposure that contained asbestos from that activity, as well as when he's installing the new linings, he's taking a brake lining that uh, has a radius to it, and he's gotta match that radius to the interior radius of the brake drum. And to do that, he'd use this brake grinder. And it's really exactly what it sounds like. It's a machine that grinds a new brake lining so that you can take out some of the high spots on the lining and make it so that when, when you hit the brakes, you're not getting all this squeaking and squealing, that it's gonna have a good contact with the brake drum. So we had uh, evidence of his brake grinding and we were able to bring in scientific studies to show that uh, testing that's been done in brake shops on both grinding and brake repair uh, led to certain levels of exposure that we had experts extrapolate over the course of Mr. Summerlin's career to show that he had a, a cumulative exposure of asbestos that was well above any background level that, that you might expect living in a, an urban environment. And, uh, and then we had to package all of that together with our causation expert and, and get the uh, Dr. Oliver, our causation expert, to opine about what caused his lung cancer. And, and her opinion was, that smoking was a substantial contributing cause and that asbestos exposure was a substantial contributing cause uh, and that the two had a synergistic relationship. And so if you look at, at the cause of smoking and say, well, that has a, you know, a risk of, of five times uh, a risk of lung cancer than, than a non-smoker. And if you look at asbestos exposure and say that that's a five times risk greater than someone who doesn't work with asbestos, you don't simply add them together and say he has a 10 times risk or, or say it's just five because each of them is five. The synergistic effect is because of smoking causing you to draw the smoke deeper into your lungs and because of the numbing effects of smoking on the lung that it caused, it accelerated the damage that the asbestos fibers were doing and that this was somewhere, you know, some, something of a synergistic effect, a multiplicative uh, or super additive effect. And it, it, was, it was a challenge to try to present that information to a jury in a way that uh, wasn't too sciencey. You know, we didn't want to put them to sleep. Uh, we didn't want their eyes rolling back in their heads on it. And it wasn't super important, the synergistic piece of it, but it was important for the jury to understand that 
um, that you know these things happening aren't mutually exclusive of each other, that they're working inside the lungs together to cause this damage, and that really both of these industries, the tobacco companies and the, the asbestos defendants, are responsible. Um, and and one of the you know one of the classic examples we use, we we didn't use it in this trial because we wanted to be careful um, of our evidentiary record, but. You know, if you've got, uh, if you've got a, a pond and there's fish in that pond that are dying and there's three factories upstream of that pond all dumping their waste into the stream that runs into the pond, what killed the fish? Can you say that it was factory A or factory B or factory C? No, but that's not our burden. Our burden is to show just that each of them contributed in a substantial amount such that they all should be considered a substantial contributing cause. And that's really what we had to do in this case and what we were, we were successful in doing, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. We didn't, the jury ultimately felt that the, the asbestos products were defective, but not that they played a cause in Mr. Summerlin's lung cancer. They, they thought that his first period of smoking, where he was smoking the RJ Reynolds tobacco products was, was really what did him in, but Jerry and I can talk more about, you know, our thoughts on, on why the jury reached the verdict they did based on the evidence they heard. Yeah, I was going to say, in looking at the jury verdict form, they found that all of the defendants, so R.J. Reynolds, Philip Morris, and Hampton Auto, Auto Sales, Automotive Sales, all breached their warranty, breached their implied warranty. But then when it came to, just as you were saying, Mike, though, on the causation question, uh, they only found against uh, R.J. Reynolds. Did you guys have a chance to talk to the jury afterwards about that and what they were, um, you know, what their thought process was? I, I From reading the transcripts, I could, uh, you know, just me looking at it, I could tell why I thought they might not find against Philip Morris because it looked like he didn't start smoking Philip Morris until a lot later in his life um, after he had already been smoking mostly RJ Reynolds. But, um, but from the other two, I mean, there's certainly a lot of evidence of him being exposed to asbestos. Yeah. Massachusetts doesn't allow us to speak to the jury after a trial. Okay. Um, yeah. There is a mechanism where if we wanted to, we could send a letter out to the jury and they have a right to decline to speak with us. But immediately following the trial, the judge goes in and speaks with them. And then she comes down and speaks with us and tells us, you know, a little bit about what the jury thought about the lawyers, the witnesses, and the case in general. But she's careful not to get into um, the jury's uh, mindset and thinking on the case. So we, we really didn't get any information or any feedback as to why they didn't find causation with asbestos. But having, having been through five weeks of evidence and a week of deliberations, I mean, you could see there was a marked difference in the presentation of the tobacco lawyers from the presentation of the asbestos defendant. And, uh, you know, my opinion is that the jury just determined that, look, we've got, we've got squarely culpability on the part of RJ Reynolds for addicting Mr. Summerlin as a teenager, pre-warnings, the menthol cigarettes. Uh, and then they had this, this asbestos defendant that the one that we took into trial was a small sort of mom and pop uh, break relining company based out of Boston. 
Um, we had had Ford in the case, we had had Bendix, we had had all of the big national companies and, and they settled out prior to trial. We knew that we were taking at least one defendant in and, and uh, our approach was to just, you know, select, get the money we could from the defendants that were willing to pay it and then um, tell one defendant, sorry, I don't, I don't care, you're coming into trial. So the one that we ended up at trial with, we had uh, good evidence of exposure, but they really... I think the jury ultimately felt sorry for them. I think they thought that, you know, this isn't a company that's in business anymore. Um, and it's not a company that was a big player nationally. Uh, so even though they were wrong and they should have warned and they should not have uh, put this product on the market without warnings and should have taken it off the market, that um, they thought that, that in terms of compensating the Summerlin family, they were fine with just letting it go to RJ Reynolds. Ultimately, uh, we don't know why the jury chose to do what they did. It, it, from, from our perspective, it certainly simplified things. We didn't have to worry about uh, post-trial motions from that defendant. We didn't have to worry about uh, getting into the issues of, of causation and causation evidence, uh, what their experts did and didn't say. It, it certainly um, simplified things post-trial for us. So, so we didn't yeah. have a problem with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that what I want to speak about is really a larger strategic point in cases. And I think if you have a case where you have multiple defendants or multiple claims and you can position a trial so that certain jurors can say no, but you can still win. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good position to be in. All right. So if you have a one defendant case and you're deciding, well, should I do the fraud and the failure to warn case? You know, if you, the juror can say no to fraud and you could still win on failure to warn. To follow up on Jerry's point, it, it is a good one. I mean, you know, we have to deal with this in the asbestos cases all the time, which is you have uh, multiple defendants and maybe uh, maybe different types of defendants. Some are insulation, some are automotive, some are home products. You know, who do you take into trial and what options do you give the jury in terms of the evidence they're going to hear about causation? Um, in this case, we were we had. Uh, the asbestos exposure, the tobacco, and really two types of tobacco exposure. So the jury got to choose and say, you know, maybe they, they were able to do a little compromising and say, well, look, you know, yes, uh, I think that the tobacco is culpable, but I, I really don't want to keep uh, asbestos in this because, you know, my father worked with asbestos. It too, hits too close to home. Whatever, it, whatever the reason, it allowed the jury to, uh, to, to do a little bit of horse trading behind the scenes. And, and, in a state like Massachusetts, where we're joint and several liability, all we need is one. And, and luckily, we got one that was deep pocketed and, uh, and that had, I think, the fewest appellate issues in terms of post-trial. So it, it worked out in the end and, and strategically was, uh, was a good move. I would just add that um, you know, we had time limits uh, on opening, uh, 20 minutes for opening. So that's tough. Uh, so how much time are you going to be able to devote uh, to the asbestos claims when you know what's coming in the tobacco opening, which is just a deluge of attacks against uh, our client and, and a lot of blaming of our client. Uh, same with closing. We had an hour and 20 minutes uh, for closing and we had to decide how we wanted to allocate that time. And so we really you know, didn't have as much time. And, and, and during the, the trial itself, we didn't have as much time to develop the asbestos uh, claims. And I think, as Mike said, we had an asbestos defendant that had limited years of exposure. 
uh, as compared to some of the other asbestos defendants that settled the case uh, before trial. And I think also just the, the power of uh, Mr. Summerlin's early addiction to cigarettes that Reynolds was responsible for and the jury's feeling that once that addiction was embedded, uh, you know, and, and was established, you know, for 30 years, that it was hard to say anything else uh, was really a substantial factor uh, yeah. at that point. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. So related to that, your client had passed away by the time you tried the case. Um, looks like he was deposed for three days. And I was curious how you pre prepare a client like that to testify about, you know, I... I Based on the materials you'd sent, I read some of the things that he had to talk about, like his cancer treatment and what he was going through, like trying to quit. Um, and I imagine you've got to do a lot of sort of just product ID stuff with him as well, the, the products that he worked with at work, his smoking history, what he was smoking, when he was smoking. How, how do you approach preparing a client like that to talk about all these difficult things, especially when he's sick? I mean, this was a very challenging uh, deposition. Uh, having a plaintiff uh, deposed by tobacco companies about their smoking in and of itself is a tremendous challenge uh, for the client, uh, particularly someone who's suffering from advanced lung cancer. Uh, being in a deposition with asbestos companies and responding to all the detailed questioning about how you use their product and what the boxes looked like and how many days a week you did this sort of break change or that sort of break change, very challenging. Um, so it was two full days of a discovery deposition. Uh, and then uh, I did a one, basically there was a full day of a, a video trial preservation deposition that consisted more, there was more cross than there was of, of my direct or redirect. Uh, I would just say that Mr. Summerlin, you know, he, he knew, <laughs> He knew everything really well, you know, because it was all very much uh, in his mind uh, because, you know, you, you know what cigarettes you smoked, okay? I mean, there's not a lot of uh, prep that has to go into, into that. He, you know, he knows the cigarettes he smoked, and he was a professional auto mechanic. So he knows what products he used, and he knows more about, you know, changing brakes and grinding brakes than certainly any of the lawyers 
So, you know, so I think that uh, it, it was a hard process. It was very hard for Mr. Summerlin uh, to get through that deposition. And I know that Joanna, his wife, you know, just mentioned how tired he was, you know, when he came home from those depositions. And he, he showed tremendous courage uh, getting through those depositions. And, and he needed to get through that, those three days of depositions for him and his family to have a case. Yeah. Hey, talk a little bit about Joanna's loss of consortium claim, because uh, it, from what I saw, it looked like she, uh, they got married relatively late in life. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure I saw it either, but was she also a smoker herself? She um, was. It, t- talk about how you presented her loss of consortium claim. So Joanna uh, was, it was a second marriage for both of them. And uh, that actually really worked well. Uh, the jury, it, you know, we thought, could it be a, a, a drawback with the fact that, uh, you know, we have children of a different marriage involved? Uh, could that be a drawback? How are the jury going to see this? But they had such a tremendous relationship. And it really was uh, two people from two very different walks of life who got together. Joanna was was into horses and, and still very much into horses, a horse lover. And so they have a small barn on their property they keep horses at and Lou was this you know Boston area auto mechanic who then went on to have a career as a welder and I think you know maybe had seen a picture of a horse or seen a movie with a horse in it, and that's <laughs> right. as close as he ever got to it but uh, as soon as they started dating he's spending time at the barn and he's helping her muck the stalls and uh, the jury could really see both from his deposition and from Joanna's how much they meant to each other and how in love they were and how the relationship just worked, how they, they took these people from two different backgrounds and they really created a very special thing together. And, uh, and, and Lou was very, um, he, he, he was very sort of raw and honest about how he spoke about their relationship. And the jury saw that, you know, they, they, it wasn't something that was flowery poems and love songs, but there was a real honesty to uh, how much she meant to him and how much he was willing to, to do for her uh, moving up to New Hampshire and getting a property with a barn and, and trailering horses around and going riding with her. And so um, the loss of consortium claim, I think, I think the jury really loved Joanna. She, she was there every day of trial in the front row. Um, she is a very tough, no-nonsense lady, a little spitfire. And right. when we got her on the stand, um, she did a great job. She spoke from the heart. She talked about Lou. She wasn't trying to put on airs or sugarcoat it and um, was very honest about their relationship and about you know when they could drive each other crazy. And, and she had a funny story I put a picture of their dog up on the screen and the, the defendants objected and went crazy. Why is there a picture of the dog? What relevance could the dog have? And I said, you know, judge, give me, give me a couple questions on the dog. So she did. And I, and I said, um, you know, what's the dog's name? And she said, Rufkin. And I said, well, what's, tell us the story about Rufkin. How did Rufkin get its name? She said, well, I always told Lou I wanted a dog. And he said, no way you're getting a dog. You know, you can't have a dog. What are we going to do with a dog? We're never going to get a dog. And she said, uh, all right, well, listen, when we, you know, when you retire, I want to get a dog. And she says, all right, when I retire, you can get a dog. Well, lo and behold, 
he retires and she gets a dog like within a couple of weeks, just gets the dog and brings it home. And he sees the dog and he says, are you effing kidding me? And that became the dog's name. But when she <laughs> tells that story to the jury, you know, and of course the jury's smiling and crying and they're just loving, you know, they're hearing about, you know, these two who had this, this really warm relationship, but it was also, you know, a relationship with people that were, you know, were not your poster children, uh, poster people for romance, right? Uh, so we had a, they, I think the size of the jury verdict was largely uh, Lou and Joanna's story, love story. It wasn't driven by um, Lou's pain and suffering as much as it was driven by the loss that Joanna experienced and the loss that Lou experienced because here he is getting the second chance at life and at love and he was embracing it and they were, they were just having a wonderful time and had great plans for the future. When the jury heard all of that, they were incredibly moved by it. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, Mike did a tremendous job with Joanna uh, in the trial testimony. Uh, I, I do think it's a little bit of a lesson that, you know, sometimes when we get cases, you might look at a, look, look at a plaintiff and look at the plaintiff family and say, you know, make a quick judgment, you know, about what the jury is going to think. And, you know, you might have a preference, you know, for like, you know, an, an intact family with all the kids, picture around the Christmas tree. And I think this is an example of how a jury can really connect with, with a family where you have uh, the plaintiffs, you know, they're on their second marriage. Uh, we, you know, Mr. Summerlin had, had, an adult, has, had an adult son, Chris Summerlin, who he had a good relationship with. Uh, Joanna had a daughter of her own from, from uh, her previous marriage, uh, and Lou said he considered her like his own daughter, you know, and he really teared up with that. Uh, Lou had, a, had another son who he was estranged from, uh, and that was something, you know, that, that we were concerned about, uh, you know, how that would, you know, and the tobacco defendants tried to bring that out as some sort of uh, something that made Lou a bad person, you know. So, you know, Mike and I, really, you know, took the time to get to know our clients and really develop a close relationship with them and really sort of dig deep and find the story and, you know, the story in their family uh, that would really resonate with the jury. And truly, uh, these were two people that were in love. And, uh, and I think the jury did feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about some, it looked like what the defense was trying to argue for why they didn't have responsibility. And it looked like there were some factual issues that came up. But one thing I saw is that there was some question about how old he was when he started smoking. And it looked like the defendants were trying to say that he was over 18 years old, uh, I guess, showing that he would be an adult and was making a conscious decision. Uh, and then that he had quit uh, several times um, throughout his lifetime, I think one time as long as a few months. And then once he had uh, uh, heart disease and, and went in for heart surgery, he was able to quit uh, for good for six years. And, uh, and, and so the defense was, uh, from what I could tell, was trying to use that to say, look, he wasn't that addicted or he had the ability to quit this whole time. And, and it was really his choice to keep smoking and doing something that we all know is dangerous. So I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about how you overcame those facts that uh, the, the defense was trying to use to their advantage. Yeah. I mean, I, in any tobacco case, 
uh, the defense strategy, the primary defense strategy, is to develop a timeline for the plaintiff's life that makes it look like the plaintiff just had a complete and total disregard for their health and just smoked because they enjoyed it and didn't care about the consequences. And, you know, virtually any tobacco case that you can, that you can have that you potentially can try, you can find a million reasons to give up and to decide not to try it because some of the facts don't look good. And that's because when people are addicted to a product, they deny, they rationalize, and they do things, you know, that aren't very flattering and don't sound real good. Uh, I mean, as to when Mr. Summerlin started, uh, the evidence was pretty clear uh, that it was 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. You know, there was like maybe one or two medical records where maybe a medical doctor, you know, rounded in terms of setting the age of smoking and, you know, had it at like 18 or 19. And they picked those out. Um, I talked about those in my opening. I wanted the jury to understand. You might see a few medical records that are different, but the totality of the evidence is going to be that he started as a teenager. But uh, yeah, in terms of the timeline that they, that they really focused on with Mr. Summerlin, you know, I think uh, in 1990, Mr. Summerlin and his first wife had heart attacks uh, literally at the same time. Oh, wow. And they literally were in uh, adjoining rooms in the hospital. <laughs> they both had heart attacks. And, you know, we had to rush to do Mr. Summerlin's deposition before we got all the medical records. And, you know, Mr. Summerlin at his deposition said, you know, I was told that I had a heart attack in 1990 because of a clogged artery. I don't remember the doctor saying anything about quitting smoking. And, you know, uh, I went right back to smoking after I had the heart attack, you know, because I was addicted. Well, the medical records come in and the medical records reflect uh, Mr. Summerlin reporting in 1990 to his doctors that he had quit for a few months, right? So that's sort of a double bad fact because it made it look like Mr. Summerlin was not telling the truth, even though it was really just uh, you know, him not remembering. Uh, and it made it look like you know, that he wasn't telling the truth and that he in fact was able to quit and just sort of went back to smoking because he chose to go back to smoking. Uh, so that, that was, a, and, they, and a big part of their case was, look, if Mr. Summerlin had quit smoking in 1990, it's unlikely that he would have developed lung cancer. Because if you have like 20, 25 years period of cessation, uh, you know, it, it's less likely you'll get lung cancer. And that was like a big part of their case. Um, another fact that they pounded, you know, was that Mr. Summerlin's own sister, died of lung cancer in 1997. And so their theme was he had a heart attack and he continued to smoke. You know, his sister developed lung cancer in the late 90s and he kept smoking. Uh, his wife died, uh, not really of a tobacco-related illness, but they sort of, uh, you know, got her death certificate and it said it was a tobacco-related illness. And so, you know, his own wife, you know, died and she was a heavy smoker and he kept smoking. And really, the response to all of that uh, was he was addicted. Right. And, you know, when something, uh, you know, a hallmark of, so we basically took all the negative facts and we turned them on their head. One of the characteristics of addiction is that you use the drug despite knowledge of the harm.
Uh, and, you know, another uh, characteristic of addiction is relapse. So Mr. Summerlin being able to quit for a few months in 1990 and then going back to smoking, well, that's called relapse. And we had to, uh, you know, explain those things to the jury. And then the final thing that they hammered was uh, that in 2009, Mr. Summerlin had major heart surgery. And, you know, you really can't make these things up because uh, his doctor, uh, who his cardiologist at the time was a Dr. Fear, spelled F-I-E-R. And Dr. Dr. Fear came in and told Mr. Summerlin uh, when he had major heart surgery in 2009, he said, uh, Mr. Summerlin, do you want to live? And effing stop smoking. And Mr. Summerlin at his deposition said he just took his pack of cigarettes, he crumbled them up and threw them in the trash. And so their, their argument was, you know, he was able to quit in 2009 for the rest of his life until he developed lung cancer in 2015 and died. Uh, he was able to quit when he was motivated and look, he could have quit before. Mm -hmm. And so we had to present evidence that, you know, he was in the hospital for, for six nights for major heart surgery. You know, he was on pain medication, which included opioids, you know, which, you know, has the same effect on the brain, you know, as nicotine. Uh, and that, you know, yeah, this is how he quit. You know, being in the hospital for six days, being cut open, going home and having his wife basically, you know, quarantine him, you know, clean, scour the house, make sure that no smokers could come in, make sure he was unable to get cigarettes. So um, really at every step of the way, you know, we argued addiction and that addiction explains all of this behavior. And uh, that was the counter to their argument that it was just choice uh, and his decision to smoke despite all these things happening around him. I really liked that um, because I think that, you know, we're still learning so much about addiction all the time, but I, I liked the the theme of the, you know, that you were, it, I, it really resonated with me, I think in part because you're going to have some jurors. There's so many people whose lives have been touched by addiction that some people, the things that you're saying are going to make sense right away in terms of the rationalization and, and how they just don't seem to be able to change these habits and, and, and get away from the addiction. But um, I also liked how you were able to educate the jury about how addiction for those that didn't really know that much about it. Um, but it had to be scary knowing when not knowing, not being able to, to really do a voir dire and know how many of them, how many of your jurors were actually, you know, affected by addiction or addicts themselves. Could you, did you reach a point in the trial? It sounds like you knew that they were with you at some point. And I'm kind of wondering how that played out when you knew that you had them. Yeah. I mean, I think that Mike, you know, can give his view as well, but I think uh, the defense, the tobacco defendants only called two witnesses. Uh, you know, they had all these experts, we deposed all these experts, and at the end of the day, uh, Reynolds called an employee of Reynolds, a toxicologist, uh, and Philip Morris called an employee of Philip Morris. And, you know, I remember saying to Mike, I cannot believe they're going to call a company representative. I mean, you know, you know, all the things you can cross a tobacco company about, and, you know, it really injected a lot of, uh, I think, drama and it just raised the temperature in the courtroom. Um, and I, I think that when I was able to cross-examine the corporate representatives for Reynolds and Philip Morris, 
Uh, and I also think calling Dr. Jeffrey Wigand, uh, who was uh, portrayed in the movie The Insider, uh, and Dr. Wigand was able to give sort of the inside story from inside Brown and Williamson. He talked about uh, tobacco being sprayed with synthetic menthol, big sprayers, spraying the menthol on the tobacco, and how the companies, you know, used it for addiction to initiate young smokers. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Well, you know, we, we focus grouped uh, this, these issues before the trial because we knew that, that to succeed in the tobacco piece of it, that addiction was going to be where, where we had to win. Uh, and so we had a good idea of, of what we thought jurors would respond to in terms of uh, testimony regarding addiction. And then we, uh, we wanted to, between the medical records and the testimony of uh, Lou, his son Chris testified, and Joanna talking about how he was when he tried to quit. First of all, he tried many times to quit, and there were multiple forms of it, some cold turkey. He used hard candies. He used the gum. He used the patch. He used Chantix for a while. Um, and, and we t had the witnesses talk about what he was like, and, and there was actually some testimony that at one point he'd put his hands on Joanna's throat he was so crazy from his acquit attempt. And then he you know, left the house, went and got a pack of cigarettes, came back and he was fine. Um, so th they talked about how he was so addicted that he would just be a different person. And, and we were able to get the jury to, to hear that testimony and then put up the documents of the tobacco company showing how much they knew about addiction and how much there was a great document that Jerry went through with their witness, which showed that uh, it was an internal uh, corporate document from the tobacco industry showing that, saying to, to the effect, of, I'm going to paraphrase here, uh, we are not in the cigarette selling business. We are in the nicotine business. Right. And cigarettes are just the delivery device. And so when the jury hears how the struggle was for Lou to quit smoking and then is shown these documents in which the tobacco companies are bragging about their ability to zero in on the exact amount of nicotine to initiate and sustain addiction and ways to add uh, menthol to overcome the body's natural defense system. They, they got there pretty, pretty easily with us. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a struggle once you synergized all of that. Yeah. And I, and I think another thing we try to do is, uh, we tried to pair the defendant's criticisms of Mr. Summerlin with things from the tobacco document showing that he was just acting or feeling in the way that the product was intended for. So for example, uh, you know, one of their big things was Mr. Summerlin smoked menthol cigarettes and he smoked cigarettes because he enjoyed it. And they asked Mr. Summerlin, you know, sir, did you enjoy the feeling you got when you smoked cool cigarettes. Yes, I did. Well, so then we showed the jury documents from the 1950s and 1960s where Reynolds or Brian Williamson is saying that when nicotine is delivered to the brain in certain amounts, that it produces a sense of enjoyment. Right. So of course he enjoyed it. Of course it produces a sense of enjoyment. And of course, anyone who uses a drug, whether it be, you know, heroin, you know, an opioid, you know, cocaine, it produces a feeling of enjoyment. 
you're right, because it's having a, an effect on your brain. Um, another, another thing I just wanted to mention was, you know, Yvonne, as you're getting ready for your trial, I don't know if what you do when you find the document, you know, that you think really makes your case. I, I, I pound on my desk, you know, I'm like, yes. We, we run around uh, the office and show everybody. Yeah. So, so we, you know, going through the medical records of Mr. Summerlin, I remember the day uh, that I found a uh, medical record from July 20th, 2009. This is right before Mr. Summerlin was diagnosed with lung cancer. And his doctor that he had of, you know, 20 plus years, uh, or July 2nd, 2009, said uh, he continues to smoke a pack and a half of cigarettes a day and cannot stop. And that he had tried all the aids to quit smoking and prescribed Chantix, uh, which Mr. Summerlin took and had terrible nightmares, which are a known side effects of Chantix. So, you know, we were able to show that before there was any lawsuit, before Mr. Summerlin was even diagnosed with lung cancer, before any experts said anything, that Mr. Summerlin's longtime treating doctor reported that he couldn't stop and reported that he had tried all the aids to quit smoking, just like Mr. Summerlin told the jury. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, finally, I wanted to give you guys a chance to talk a bit about the punitives aspect of this. First, my first question is, was this a bifurcated trial and did you try the punitives separately? And then um, what do you think drove the punitives? Was it the, the memos or the, uh, from the cigarette company showing how they, you know, this is a, a nicotine delivery device and you want to keep enough nicotine to keep them addicted? Um, can you talk about the punitives a little bit? Yeah, so it, uh, the first part of your question, was it bifurcated? It was. Uh, it was until the last witness was on the stand. And so the, the tobacco companies had, had moved to bifurcate punitives into a separate phase, which we agreed to. We didn't want to fight that fight with them. And then they've got their corporate wit last corporate witness on the stand, and they moved to unbifurcate. Uh, and they wanted to hear it all at once. Uh, after we hadn't had a chance to go through any of the punitive evidence with their other corporate witness. Right. So uh, we said to the judge, well, you know, what are we going to do here? We, we want to bring back the other witness so that we can at least put the punitive uh, information on and ask the questions about, you know, net worth and company value, et cetera. Uh, and the judge was at this point, we were, you know, five weeks in, she wanted this judge, she wanted this trial over and was happy to not have to have a second phase. So I think she just said, listen, you, uh, let's just put this on, do the best you can. She said, you know, you guys work out a stipulation that I'll read to the jury about their value and their worth. We don't need to have it through witnesses. And despite, uh, impassioned arguments from us that, you know, we really need to go into this in more detail. She said, nope, just exchange information. So we did. Uh, but the way that uh, Philip Morris has set up their corporation, they upstream their profits to uh, a parent company. So the, the amount of money sitting in the sort of quote unquote net worth of Philip Morris isn't anywhere near. It's, it's a fraction of what they make off of Marlboro alone. Um, right. but we can't develop that in a, in a stipulation. And so um, we tried to argue that with the judge. She said, no, it, you know, it is what it is, whatever Philip Morris is worth, and, and they can show it through their, uh, their SEC filings. That's what we're going to say. And so what we decided was, listen, I'd rather just, we knew we had that witness from RJR in the stand. We were able to get good testimony out of him. 
about what RJR was worth. So we said, we'll put on the RJR testimony and then we're not going to say anything about Philip Morris. We'll just say that, you know, uh, that, that their, their um, Marlboro cigarettes are the best-selling cigarette in the world and, and we'll let the jury figure it out from there. But we were, I think, disadvantaged in, in not really being able to put on our punitive case because we weren't expecting to do it. Yeah. But ultimately well, the, jury, the jury went with us. Yeah, well, we got, we got billions from the Reynolds corporate rep and I said, okay, we have billions. You know, they, uh, I think we had 50-something billion uh, in terms of, uh, you know, one of the financial, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of the financial indicators. But uh, in terms of what drove the punitive damages award, and just a little bit more about that, um, sort of, I'll, I'll tell you a funny, unique uh, aspect of the damages issue was, this has never happened to me. Uh, the judge uh, said, okay, uh, you can ask for a number, but you have to tell the defendants uh, the, the day before closing, what that number is. And I said, you know, so we sort of argued about that with the judge. She said, that's the way it's going to be. I said, judge, but you're not going to let them argue it, you know, because I want to be able to really argue it and build up to it and then ask for the number, you know? And she said, no, no, they can argue it. So if you, if you read their closing, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll make, they're making a point and they're saying, and the plaintiff wants you to award $27 million for that. And, you know, Mr. Summerlin, you know, he did this and they want you to award $27 million and they really, you know, went on offense with it. So I think in part because we had to tell them how much we were asking for, uh, we decided we weren't going to ask for an amount for punitive damages. So uh, the jury awarded $13.1 million in compensatory damages. Uh, We asked for 27. And then on the issue of punitives, uh, I argued it, you know, qualitatively, but did not uh, suggest a number. Um, I think what drove the $30 million punitive damages award are the factors that should drive the award, uh, which are that the conduct was egregious. I mean, uh, what's worse, you know, than engineering a product to be as addictive as possible you know, getting, getting a young kid hooked on cigarettes, you know, causing the worst kind of damages that could be caused. Uh, I think another thing was the jury's awareness through the evidence that this is an ongoing issue, uh, that an expert panel for the FDA has recommended that, man, that menthol be, uh, be banned from cigarettes uh, because of its dangerous properties and the cigarette companies have pushed back with the FDA and in court uh, claiming really, uh, you know, in a way that's not credible, that menthol is just a flavor. Um, so I think the fact that it's an ongoing issue uh, and the jury feeling like there was a real need for deterrence, not only for what they did to the Summerlin family, but to prevent them from engaging in this same conduct going forward. Well, it's tremendous work and, and a, a very important case. And we've really enjoyed talking with Jerry Block and Mike Shepard. And, um, and I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the Summerlin versus Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds and Hampton Auto Sales case that was tried up in Suffolk County, Massachusetts. 
and resulted in a $43.1 million verdict. And uh, if you want to look up Jerry Block, you can look him up at Levy Konigsberg. And their website is Levy, L-E-V-Y, LevyLaw.com. And then Mike Shepard is at the Shepard Law Firm in Boston, Massachusetts. And you can look up Mike at uh, ShepardLawFirm.com. And I'm going to spell it right this time, Mike. It's S H E P. A-R-D-L-A, well, I'm spelling law firm now, (laughs) shepherdlawfirm.com. So, guys, it's been really, uh, really uh, tremendous work. Great talking to you and uh, and, and great result for your clients. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Yvonne. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Steve and Yvonne. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.